You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Huawei's CFO remains in Canadian custody, perhaps to be extradited to the U.S., All five eyes have now expressed strong reservations about Huawei on security grounds. They've been joined in this by Japan and the European Union. Proofpoint sees a shift in cybercrime toward more carefully targeted and thoughtful social engineering. Kaspersky describes Dark Vishnaya, a criminal campaign using surreptitiously planted hardware to loot Eastern European banks. And New York Times national security correspondent David E. Sanger joins us to discuss his latest book, The Perfect Weapon. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, December 7th, 2018. China has demanded that Canada release Huawei CFO Meng from custody but in custody she seems likely to remain. Canadian police arrested Ms. Meng in Vancouver as she was transiting through the city's airport. The decision to arrest her was a Canadian decision. Prime Minister Trudeau says it was a judicial matter and properly conducted by an independent judiciary. The arrest appears to have been opportunistic rather than well-planned in advance. It's not known if an Interpol red notice was out for Ms. Meng. The U.S. is generally expected to seek Ms. Meng's extradition, hearings for which could occupy weeks or even months. Canada and the U.S. have an extradition treaty of long-standing, one of whose provisions is that the crime charged must be a crime under the laws of both countries. In any case, Huawei has politely expressed its confidence in Canadian and American justice. The U.S. is investigating not only violation of sanctions imposed on Iran, but financial crimes as well, specifically involving money laundering. Huawei is thought to have used HSBC as a conduit for illicit transactions with Tehran. HSBC was fined and entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. Justice Department back in 2012, in connection with violations of U.S. sanctions and money laundering laws. The arrest is taken as a strong signal of U.S. determination to enforce sanctions. It's also believed likely to sharpen the ongoing Sino-American trade war, with IT market leadership at stake. Observers wonder whether China will retaliate for U.S. measures against Huawei and ZTE, and Russia for Kaspersky's exclusion from U.S. government systems, with their own legal or extra-legal action against U.S. companies. 
Such a response from China would be more troubling than one from Russia. Trade ties and technology interconnection is much more pronounced with China. And of course, Huawei remains under suspicion in all five eyes of posing a security risk. The U.S. intelligence community has regarded the company as a deniable cat's paw for Chinese intelligence services since at least 2010. Australia has been close behind the U.S. in voicing extreme skepticism about the company. This was seen in Australian efforts to prevent Huawei from participating in a telecommunications cable service being established in Papua New Guinea, and in recent moves to exclude Huawei from Australia's 5G network build-out. Mike Burgess, head of the Australian Signals Directorate, warned just this week that Huawei's devices could pose a threat to water and power infrastructure were they to be used in those networks. New Zealand put similar restrictions in place over the past week. BT, the British telecommunications giant, has announced it's dumping Huawei equipment to the chagrin of some British business partners of Huawei. And MI6 director Alex Younger warned in a speech Monday that cell towers and other communications infrastructure could be vulnerable to compromise. He told an audience at St Andrews University, quote, "We need to decide the extent to which we are going to be comfortable with Chinese ownership of these technologies." And these platforms in an environment where some of our allies have taken a very definite position. Canada may be the last of the five eyes to reach this conclusion, but it seems to be moving swiftly in that direction. Nor is such suspicion confined to the five eyes. Japan has decided to exclude both Huawei and its smaller competitor ZTE from government contracts. And this morning, the European Union's Technology Commission warned that Huawei constituted a threat, specifically citing the risk of mandatory backdoors installed in its equipment at the behest of Chinese intelligence services. Huawei, of course, denies that it does any of this, but sentiment is running strongly against Chinese hardware manufacturers. A large Chinese information operations campaign seems already to form part of a response. The Guardian has a long account of an image-building campaign Beijing is conducting to shift the center of world civilization in the direction of the Middle Kingdom. This involves purchasing and operating media outlets. Such simple stuff as putting paid content into newspapers. Those inserts you see, like "Shanghai is open for business" or "Young entrepreneurs of Guangdong welcome you," cultural centers, and so on. This presents a contrast with the shadowy trolling and false fronts characteristic of Russian information operations. It will be worth watching to see what success the Chinese campaign has. Turning to more ordinary stories of cybercrime, Proofpoint warns of an emerging threat to U.S. retailers. TA505, as Proofpoint calls the criminal group behind Lockheed and Drydex ransomware campaigns, uses highly personalized attachments in a phishing campaign. That spreads remote manipulator system and flawed Amy malware, rats and backdoors. The attachment is typically a malicious word document that represents itself as a scan. The personalization consists of making the document look as if it came from the company being targeted, which of course makes it more likely that an employee might open it. One aspect of the personalization is including the company's logo in the document lure. Proofpoint sees this an instance of a shift in the criminal market. TA505 had, through 2017, been a black market leader with massive phishing campaigns. And shouldn't there be some related metaphor for that kind of phishing? Something related to bottom trawling, perhaps? 
those massive indiscriminate efforts, Proofpoint mentions smash-and-grab ransomware campaigns, are less common because they're less profitable. Some of that is due to increased general awareness of commonplace phishing tactics. Some of it may be due to the way altcoin values have cratered in 2018. In any case, more effort, better targeting, smaller scale, and more thoughtful engineering seem to be the trend. Kaspersky Lab describes a crime wave it's investigating that's cost Eastern European banks millions. ZDNet calls it Hollywood hacking because it uses the kind of techniques one usually sees in a heist or caper movie, but far less often in real life. In this case, the criminals physically enter a bank, attach small, cheap hardware to the bank's networks, leave the devices in place, and then retire to remotely drain funds. The hardware normally used is either a cheap laptop, a Raspberry Pi board, or a Bash Bunny malicious thumb drive. Kaspersky won't name the affected banks because of security and non-disclosure concerns, but they say the losses have been high. Of the three kinds of hardware the criminals are using, the laptops are obviously the easiest to spot, but even those go unnoticed. A Raspberry Pi or a Bash Bunny are much easier to deploy unobtrusively. Kaspersky says the criminal operations, which it calls collectively Dark Vishnaya, have been going on since last year. It's worth reminding people that physical security often intersects cybersecurity. Dark Vishnaya is a good example of how. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Uh, Justin, today I want to touch base with you about go bags. Uh, now, I'm not going to say whether or not I actually have a go bag in my house if I need to get out of town in a hurry. But when it comes to incident response, uh, you're making the case that uh, 
a go bag is something that perhaps you need to have in your arsenal. That's exactly right. A go bag is not just for your your consulting incident response team, which I run, but it's also could be for your incident responders in, in commercial and in, in government clients as, or c- companies as well. Hmm. Um, in our go bag, we could be called at any point to get on a plane and travel halfway around the world in order to respond to an incident. So it's important that we have everything lined up, ready to go, just like you see in the movies with, uh, let's say, the FBI hostage uh, rescue team. They've got their (laughs) go bags. Well, on a cyber level, we've got the same thing. Yeah. And it goes beyond having (laughs) packed uh, several outfits and and so on. We also travel with technology that helps us accelerate our work. So we've got the tools that we use. So we have our own USB drives that have all of our tools, our forensic collection kits, our uh, endpoint detection and response software. We also are quite heavy users of Splunk. So we've got that in our arsenal as well on our laptop ready to go. And in fact, many of us travel with several laptops up to two or three at a time. So we've got our normal corporate laptop, and then we've got our analysis, our beefy laptop that has ungodly amount of CPU and and disk and and memory ready to do a forensic analysis. So you're the guys I don't want to get behind at the airport. <laughs> yes, although a lot of times our go bags are what are in what we call the Pelican. Uh, cases. These uh, are hard shell cases sure. uh, that look like something you'd ship a weapon or uh, very expensive audio visual mm. uh, equipment. And, and that holds a lot of our encrypted USB drives that have little pin codes on there. So we don't have to remember, oh, yeah, did that? Uh, did our team member encrypt that drive? We're, we take uh, data privacy and the communication of, of data safely very seriously. So we don't leave it up to the user to encrypt the USBs. We do it ourselves with the, with the pen pads. Uh, we also travel many times with what we call minions. Uh, these are suitcase servers, probably about the size of a 20-inch monitor and a little bit thicker than that. Uh, it has a, a monitor built into it. Sometimes uh, they make them with keyboards that flip down as well. And these have the power of about 10 laptops if we need to run uh, Splunk uh, for all of our forensic investigations. If we need to load up to 100 forensic images to do analysis, we can do that on on the Minion. And they're very portable. Uh, and if that is not enough, we also have a, a refrigerator-sized, um, actually a half-refrigerator-sized rack mount server that we can actually ship out via FedEx or UPS uh, to get to the client side if we need to do uh, additional uh, analysis. Uh, in addition to that, our go bags also have write blockers and technology uh, designed to do quick uh, forensic collection amongst systems uh, in the enterprise, uh, as well as things that you wouldn't really necessarily suspect to be in a go bag, things like projectors. You never know it, where in the world we're going to go hmm. or if we're going to be in a war room uh, without the ability to project on the wall. So we uh, travel with uh, projectors as well, including several other types of mobile technologies. For instance, uh, mobile phone collection kits we have in addition to your standard array of networking gear. So sometimes we've got little little tap span port hubs that we can uh, deploy in the field and start to get uh, to collect 
network forensic data in addition to uh, our own ability to phone home. So clearly our own uh, wireless access points to be uh, above and outside of the network that we're working at at any given client. I'm imagining you rappelling in from a helicopter. That's the vision I have in my mind's eyes. It's not not too far off from that, I suppose. Not too much. I think we have our uh, our helicopter on order, so we will hopefully get uh, we'll hopefully get delivery of that next year. See if you get budget approval on that one. All right, exactly. Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is David E. Sanger. He's national security correspondent and senior writer for The New York Times. He's the author of several best-selling books on national security and foreign policy, the most recent of which is The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. Cyber has emerged over the past 10 years as the primary way that countries seek to undermine and compete with each other in a short-of-war way. And by short-of-war, I mean attack each other, spy on each other, manipulate each other, using techniques that are not likely to bring about a major military conflict. And that's why the book is called The Perfect Weapon, because cyber is cheap, it's deniable, it's easily targeted, you can dial it up and you can dial it down. In other words, it's the opposite of a nuclear weapon. You can actually control its effects and target it very carefully, and it can sometimes be difficult to figure out where it is that an attack came from. And so my fascination as somebody who has covered national security for many decades, been a foreign correspondent for the Times, covered national security and foreign policy in Washington for many years, has been the emergence of a technology that is as game-changing as the invention of the airplane was, in some ways as game-changing as the invention of the atom bomb was, but very, very different ways, as a new power of influence and a leveler because it's so cheap that allows much weaker and smaller and broke countries to challenge far more powerful ones. To what degree do nations respect the capabilities of each other when it comes to the cyber domain? Again, I'm thinking about with nuclear weapons. You you test a nuclear weapon or, or even as uh, as they were used in World War II. Well, that's a pretty big demonstration of the capabilities of these weapons. And it strikes me that I don't know that we've seen a similar tester or a demonstration of capabilities in the cyber domain. It seems to me that it's more possibilities so far. Is that is my perception accurate there? Close, but not entirely. So you're absolutely right that the nuclear age began with a far larger and more fearsome demonstration of power. 
And it actually affected how we thought about and dealt with nuclear weapons for the succeeding 70 years. Because after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there was no value in hiding what our capability was. Everybody knew what our capability was. We knew what our capability was. Uh, but we had demonstrated it to the world. And thus, we could sort of have an open debate about how we wanted to go use that capability. And that debate ended up in a completely different place. And it started, right? I mean, you had MacArthur wanting to use nuclear weapons against uh, North Korea and China. He, during uh, Vietnam, as we now know, General Westmoreland wanted to bring nuclear weapons into South Vietnam in case he needed to use them in North Vietnam. But by the late 70s and 80s, we had basically decided we would only use nuclear weapons uh, as a matter of national survival. In cyber, we've never had our Hiroshima and Nagasaki moment. So uh, what's happened is countries believe that if they talk much or demonstrate much of their cyber activities or even admit to them, that somehow it impedes their power by revealing too much. I actually think the opposite is the case. It's one of the reasons it's gotten in the way of our deterrence. Hmm. Perhaps the biggest case where the issue of um, respecting another nation's powers have come along has been in the election hack where President Obama thought about retaliating against the Russians when it became clear that they had been behind the hacks of the DNC and John Podesta's email and so forth. But he hesitated, as I describe in the book, because of the fear that the Russians would come back on election day. And when they did, they might attack the actual voting machines. Now, one of the things that you advocate in the book is this notion of, of creating sort of a Geneva Convention framework for cyber arms control. Uh, where are we when it comes to establishing those sorts of norms? Very early stages, and most of it hasn't been terribly successful. There was an early effort that I was impressed with that was done by the um, United Nations, a group of experts, but that floundered about a year ago with uh, the Russians and the Chinese getting in the way of it. The United States itself is part of the problem here. And and the, the thought of a Geneva Convention is initially somewhat appealing because treaties don't work in the cyber age. There are just too many players, and many of them are non-governmental actors who don't sign treaties, you know, criminal groups, um, teenagers, um, all sorts of, of patriotic hackers. So having an agreement between the United States and Russia and China wouldn't get you very far. But having a sort of understood code as the Geneva Convention tries to protect civilians in um, ordinary uh, combat uh, is another matter, because while it's unenforceable, it begins to set a norm of behavior. And that norm is important. It's the reason some people get dragged up in front of the criminal court, right, in The Hague. In the digital world, the idea of a digital Geneva Convention would be, again, to protect civilians, to sort of say, what targets should be off limits? And if we were making a list, we could come up with some election systems, hmm. the electrical grid, hospitals, nursing homes, emergency communication systems. You can think of a pretty good list. The problem with that is I suspect that even the U.S. intelligence community would object to signing the U.S. up to those because they would say, do you want to limit the president if he thinks that he can avoid a war by messing with another country's um, elections? Where do you see this going? How do you see it uh, playing out when you look toward the horizon? Where do you see, where do you think we're going to find ourselves in the coming years? It's a really good question. This 
is accelerating dramatically as a weapon for states, as a defense set of defensive measures. And the problem's growing more complex, of course, by the Internet of Things. If we think that we have 12 or 13 billion Internet of Things devices now, it'd probably be well over 20 billion by 2020, by most estimates. All of those increase the attack space that countries can attack. We have to think of ourselves right now as sort of at the end, where we were in air power at the end of World War I. We knew the airplane could fly. We knew that there had been some skirmishes in the air, the Red Baron, people up against the German early airplanes during World War I. But the weapon had not been decisive. It didn't become decisive until World War II. You have to think of cyber in sort of the same terms. We've seen the early skirmishes. We haven't seen the true capabilities of the weapon. Our thanks to David E. Sanger for joining us. The book is The Perfect Weapon, War, Sabotage, and Fear in the Cyber Age. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.